Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. There are nearly 20 million military vets in the U.S. And each week, we focus on their stories. This is CBS Eye on Veterans. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm Navy vet Phil Briggs reporting for the Military Veteran Lifestyle website, ConnectingVets.com. Today, we're going to have nothing short of an inspirational guest, but a guy that you just wonder, man, how on earth did you accomplish all this in one lifetime? He's a Navy SEAL veteran. He went from being a film tech advisor turned actor, and he's worked with acclaimed film directors like Michael Bay on films you've heard of before. Transformers, The Last Night, featuring Mark Wahlberg. Then there's the TV series, Terminal List, which stars Chris Pratt. His recent work includes the hit box office film, Plane, which co-stars Gerard Butler. And you've probably seen him on Fox TV before for the TV show Special Forces, World's Toughest Test. But Remy Adelake, former Navy SEAL, is not just relying on good looks and scripts being handed to him. He's gone on to make his own content. His first book was his memoir. Transformed, a Navy SEAL's unlikely journey from the throne of Africa to the streets of the Bronx, defying all odds. And his latest book, Chameleon. It's a CIA black ops thriller featuring a Nigerian-born, New York-raised Kali Kent. Remy Adelake is a lot like Kali Kent. Born in Western Africa, following his father's death, he relocated to the Bronx and the tough streets with his mother and his brother. And after years of making regrettable decisions, He joined the Navy in 2002 and later became a Navy SEAL. Now, the book opens up with a chase scene in the cocaine-fueled, narco-filled slums of South America, where we're introduced to this dark and dangerous world of ransom, kidnapping, and murder. 
Remy's life experience as a Navy SEAL team member who specialized in gathering human intelligence paints the story with such vivid real-world details that it's simultaneously terrifying and thrilling. So with that, let's say hello to former Navy SEAL, actor, filmmaker, author, and at one time underwear model, Remy Adeleke. Remy, great to talk to you, my brother. Hey, Phil. Thank you so much for having me back on, brother. I appreciate you. Yeah, man. It's been since 2019 since we last spoke. And I got to say, our conversation and your willingness to share your Christian faith with me has never, ever been forgotten. Before we jump into the book, let's start with a thumbnail sketch of your backstory. Born Nigerian royalty, if you will. Your father was chief. The African tribe. What was the name of the tribe again? The Yoruba Yoruba tribe. Yoruba tribe. Yeah. He was an entrepreneur, an engineer, a brilliant guy. And I heard from other interviews that he actually was the engineer for the construction of the first man-made island in Africa. So kind of unpack that for me. Tell me how you went from Africa to the hard streets of the Bronx. Yeah, my dad was uh, very successful what he did. And because of that, we had a very luxurious lifestyle. And uh, his goal was to create a uh, African Wall Street uh, where people from all around the world could come and do business because uh, uh, Nigeria is very, very rich in resources, gold, oil, cocoa, other minerals, natural gas, you name it, Nigeria has it. And uh, so he was just trying to organize it in one place. And so he uh, uh, developed one of the first man-made islands in the world. Um, in uh, Lagos, off the coast of Lagos, Ecole Pacific. Uh, uh, and uh, his goal was to dredge the foreshore to make a man-made island, and he did that. Um, um, after uh, the land had formed, uh, the Nigerian government came in and stripped him of the asset and uh, said that, you know, he wasn't supposed to have it. They conveniently waited. All of his money and, and wealth had been leveraged and put into this island. And so uh, uh, once that happened and then he died a few weeks later, um, we lost everything, went from rich to poor. And my mother uh, permanently relocated us to the U.S. Uh, and that was kind of how I ended up in, in, in the Bronx. If it sounds like little glimpses of the movie coming to America, uh, we're going to, we're going to get to some of those similarities. Cause, uh, yeah. in the last week, I've listened to a bunch of different interviews you've done and yeah. you've shared some incredible stories, all of which are in your first book, a transformed, which I yeah. highly recommend. You want to hear that yeah. whole life story unpacked. Just an amazing book there. Well, let's start with this. You know, since we mentioned coming to America, you're born into this wealthy Nigerian family and of course, corrupt foreign governments. You know, we always hear about stealing. You know, they're stealing yeah. wealth from the wealthy people in their own nation. They're uh, invading other lands and, uh, you know, killing people and taking over their resources. I mean, greed is just something that is global and it is truly tragic. But I was always taken with the similarity to coming to America that is not your life, but it's your dad's. We've gone to a great deal of trouble to select for you a very fine wife. I want a woman that's going to arouse my intellect as well as my loins. Where will you find such a woman? In America. And it was the story of how your mom and your dad met. Something about an art gallery. And here your father is this highly educated, I mean, almost with like an English accent I can kind of hear or, you know, can switch back between the African and the English global citizen that he was. Um, Tell me about that. 
Yeah, the Metropolitan Museum of Natural History. My mom, she had always been into the arts, um, uh, especially African art. And my dad, not only was he, uh, uh, he loved art, African art, but he was a collector of art, uh, from Benin sculptures to, uh, you know, a lot of people in Europe, uh, uh, paintings and sculptures and, 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 and so on and so forth. And so, um, one day my dad, one, one day my dad was in New York City and, uh, he found out that he was doing business at the World Trade Center. He was actually, I can't remember. I, I don't know for sure if he was still on the board of the World Trade Center during this event, but he was at one point on the board, board of the World Trade Center. And, uh, and so he saw that there was going to be a Yoruba exhibit. So, um, he decided to go. My mom, she, same thing. She saw that this exhibit was advertised and she loved Yoruba art and was fascinated by it. So she decided she'd go to at the same day on the same day. And so they went and, uh, um, you know, one moment she's staring at a piece of art and my dad is staring at that same piece of art and he, you know, has, starts up a conversation with her and, uh, you know, she's like, got to get away from me, but, you know, cause she was not into, uh, into him. She was just into, uh, into the art and, uh, and, uh, so she was gracious and said, okay, bye. And then she went to another piece of art and he happened to be there. And then, you know, before he knew it, he kept on trying. He was very, he was very persistent. And, uh, finally, uh, my mom agreed to go on a date with him. And, uh, uh, yeah, that's kind of how they met and they ended up getting married five months later. And my mom decided to move to Nigeria with my dad. Uh, and so, you know, it was kind of like that coming to a story, uh, coming to America story where, uh, you have, uh, you know, Eddie Murphy's character that meets the New Yorker and, uh, you know, uh, he, they get married and she brings him back to Zimunda. She, he brings her back to Zimunda. <laughs> exactly. That's totally what I was thinking when I heard that story. Only it was kind of the opposite because Eddie Murphy was trying to hide his character. Yeah. I can yeah. only imagine like your dad saying, you know, you know. You should come with me to Africa. Yeah, I have a yeah, very good life. I am, yeah, I am a, you know, I am a prince. I am a tribal chief. Yeah. It, it, like no American New York woman's going to believe that. They're going to exactly. be like, like, yeah, I'm sure you're a chief. All right, chief. Well, there's yeah. the door. You get to step in. <laughs> That's exactly how it was. That's exactly how it was. My mom was just like, I haven't heard it all. I'm a New Yorker. Get away from me. <laughs> you also had kind of a coming to America moment. Um, was something about when Nigerian American sailors, like Nigerian Americans that were in the U.S. Navy, oh, yeah, saw yeah, your yeah. name on a uniform the same way that strangers recognized Eddie Murphy's character in that stadium. This is the greatest day of my life. It was very nice meeting you two. Who was that? Just the man I met in the restroom. Yeah, yeah. So my last name is Adeleke. It's Yoruba. Uh, it means, Ade means crown and Lake, it means is supreme or is above. And so, uh, uh, I was, had mine in the military. You wear your last name on your uniform and your uh, branch of service on the other side of the uniform. And then you wear your rank on your uniform. And so I was on this ship, uh, uh as a, as a 
Corpsman with the Marines, Corpsman to medics. And I'm standing in a chow line, just waiting to, waiting to get some chow. And these two Nigerians, uh, they were, you know, from Nigeria, but joined the U.S. Navy. Uh, and they walked past me. And so my name tag, my uh, name tag, Adelaide, and they stopped and they were like, Oh my God, you're, you're Adelaide, you are Yoruba, you are here. <laughs> and then, uh, they started, and they were actually speaking to me in Yoruba. Um, uh, and, but I didn't know you were, but they kind of, you know, uh, gave me a, a, a verbal lashing, you know, you know, in a fun way and, and said, how can you not speak your body? How can you not speak your language? And, uh, and yeah, yeah, that was a funny moment. I'll never, I'll never forget that, but it was definitely a, a good reminder of where I had come from and who I was, you know, uh, that I wasn't just a, E three or E four to maybe whatever rank I was at the time, and uh, I was I was destined for greatness, and it was all interwoven in my name. I love it. I love it, and and like I can see that because I spent my whole I spent my whole enlistment on a ship, and yeah, yeah I can just imagine like you're an E four, which even on a ship you're still kind of a nobody. You're still the guy yeah. with the swab. You're still doing the details that nobody else wants to do. That's E five yeah. or above, and here they are yeah. looking at you. And Adelaide, look at you, successful E four. Yeah. Oh, love that part of that interview. Um, let's talk a little bit about your time in the Bronx. Obviously we go from this Nigerian family that had it all and was in charge of, you know, people and land and, and, and just doing great things for the people of Nigeria. And then it all came crashing down. Father tragically passes and you end up in the Bronx. In our last interview, you were a little light on details for time, but we did chat a little bit about kind of the path you'd chosen. And I'm just... In my mind, I'm hearing, you know, the early days of hip hop. I'm visualizing all the music videos we've seen, the tough streets, the drugs, the gunplay. Things did get rather dark. And, you know, you found yourself on the wrong side of the law. Uh, Share with me a story from those days. You know, here you are, young adolescent Remy Adeleke, trying to find his way in the Bronx. Yeah, you know, I... Not having a father, I was just very influenced by um, my environment. I would say that I was a product of my environment. And, uh, you know, I started out small, uh, stealing from my mother and then the little that she had. And then that progressed to stealing from uh, stores and and, uh, and 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 then that progressed to stealing, getting jobs and stealing from jobs, you know, stealing sneakers from a sneaker store that I worked at and uh, uh, would steal them and then sell them for cash, you know, to people. Uh, and then that progressed to selling drugs and that progressed to running, you know, cell phone scams, you know, where I was bringing all kinds of money and then, you know, essentially laundering that money to a record company. Uh, this record company, I keep it on my desk as a reminder. Uh, but this is, uh, that's, this is me right here. Uh, at, at 19 years old, essentially, uh, you know, hustling and doing what I could do to essentially fund my record business so that I can eventually get out of doing the illegal stuff that I was doing. And, um, and so, uh, yeah, the biggest, it kind of all reached its peak when I got it in, in, I want to say December of 2001. So this had to be just about two, three months after 9-11. And I ended up selling a, 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 some phones to a guy and, 
uh, drug dealer and it was supposed to last for 90 days. They only lasted for, you know, like two weeks, something like that. And he came and threatened my life. And, uh, that was a huge wake up call for me. That was my, hey, that was my proverbial spanking. Essentially, uh, you know, t- God telling me, if you don't stop doing this, you're going to end up dead over prison. And so I, uh, decided to, to make this guy his money back, which I kind of I had to because my life was threatened. And then I, uh, I decided, you know what? No more of this. I'm going to, uh, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm, uh, I'm uh, I can't do this anymore. And, and that's when I eventually joined six months later is when I eventually joined Navy. But that was kind of the process of how I went from, you know, being a young kid, you know, uh, listening to music and watching people in the streets do what they do and learning to mimic that and searching for a father in the streets. And then that was a process that worked me up all the way up from, I would say about, 10, 11 years old to 19 and uh, uh, deep into the crime. Like, yeah. I like how you call it a spanking too, because like when you're yeah. on the wrong road, you know, you run into all these situations and you hear it in yeah. every lyric of, yeah. you know, from the Genesis of hip hop until today, yeah. you know, all these guys and look at some of the names that we look up to, you know, Biggie, and you yeah. got Tupac and you got all these, um, you know, the West Coast sound, Dre, Snoop, all that stuff. You know, they all sang about that. But what we as kids don't understand is that they'd already turned the corner by the time we're hearing the record. By the time yeah. it's on the radio, they've already got us or they, they're already secured at least a foothold in the music industry. But it inspires all these other young guys and gals to come up through those ranks. Yeah. Only they're still in the crime lane. Yeah. There's. They're still robbing, stealing, slinging dope. And you need that wake up, I think, to get out. And I think too many, especially today, I think too many kids on YouTube, too many kids in the internet generation feel as though, well, it's a smooth, you know, I'll, I'll just keep doing this till I go viral and then boom, I'm in. And, and, and they don't realize you can come face to face with the real deal. You can come face to face with characters that will kill you as soon as look at you. Yep. And you don't get out with one music video. You don't get out with one record you record with your buddies and you scrape yeah. up enough cash to get the single. Success doesn't happen. And for most young kids, especially in this internet generation, yeah. your path is what will invariably happen. You'll meet somebody yeah. that don't play and yeah. the guns are real and they will kill you. Yeah. 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 You think you'd be and, uh, dead if you hadn't joined the Navy? Oh, I, I think I would be dead or in prison. I probably, I probably lean more towards prison because I would have probably fell back into trying to get the quick, get rich quick schemes, you know, trying to get money quick. Uh, and a big part of it was my pride because I did to go to school or join in the military at that time was beneath me. Um, I didn't like uniforms. I remember making fun of the kids in the, uh, what was it called? The ROTC. Cause they were always yep. the nerdy kids that were like, you know, squares, right? And I didn't want to be that. And so I think that if I didn't join the military, I, you know, for dead on prison for sure, but I lean more towards prison. Uh, in fact, one of the guys, Roderick, who I, who's in my book and I used to hustle with, man, we used to sell drugs together and do the cell phone thing together. And Rod, he, he, he got straight. He got out of the game. Like, like, just like I did, went straight for a little bit, was a bus driver 
And then he jumped back into it, you know, trying to make that money, strong arm robbery and, you know, and, and some other stuff he did. And he was uh, in prison in Pennsylvania, did time in Pennsylvania prison. This is about three, four years ago. And uh, as soon as he got released from that prison, he got put in prison in New Jersey for some other crimes he had committed, you know. So uh, that would, I think that would have been my path more yeah. so than death, but that, that death was probably an option for sure. And, you know, the justice system, let's face it, in America, there's a couple tiers, you know, yeah. those that have means and can get a yeah. lawyer up and, you know, yeah. can can show up and pay their way. And then there's those that can't. And yeah. unfortunately, you know, in the socioeconomic underprivileged areas, whatever you want to call it, you know, the hood, yeah. not a lot of people are going to get a lawyer. And yeah. not a lot of people are going to feel the military reaching out and asking them to join, like maybe they do in rural populations or maybe they yeah. do, you know, in the suburbs, not a lot of people going to the Bronx looking yeah. for Marines, not the least yeah. of which seals. I don't think yeah. there's a seal recruiting poster in the Bronx anywhere. Yeah. And if it weren't for one angel in your life, and this might be, you know, again, yeah. one of the like first ways you see God working through yeah. other people to find Remy and say, come home, my son. Yeah. But we talk about, um, Tiana yeah. Reyes. Yeah. Uh, she's somebody that's impacted your life in countless ways. Tell me a little bit about her. Yeah. She grew up in the Bronx, um, and, uh, joined the Navy. Went, did her time in the fleet on the ship. And then after, I don't know the exact number of years, but after her serving her, her time, uh, she decided to come back to the Bronx, still in the Navy, but as a Navy recruiter. And, uh, she was awesome, man. She, uh, I later found out, well, this is easy. This, you know, when I say later, I mean like as, as late as a couple years ago that she would drive around the Bronx and, and, you know, talk to people she grew up with, talk to drug dealers and say, hey, listen, I see where your life is going. Come with me, join the Navy, or, you know, join the military so that you don't end up caught up. And uh, as a matter of fact, her brother, he uh, got charged with some misdemeanors. And uh, she was she wasn't a recruiter yet, but she flew back home and helped him get into the Air Force. Um so that he could turn his life around. He did his time in the Air Force and then got out. And now he's, you know, doing really, really good. And so um, that was her. She was a very giving person, you know. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, so when I came in to the Navy recruiter's office and she ran my background, discovered I had two warrants out for my arrest, um, she she could have turned me in. She could have put me on a military black blacklist, which – you know, once you get put in, pretty much can't get joined anywhere. And, uh, uh, but she did it. She instead, you know, ne- you know, the next day or so took me to the, drove me to the judges in New Jersey, New York and, uh, had on her dress uniform and advocate on my behalf and said, Hey, this kid's made mistakes, but he has potential. Um, can't join the military with a criminal record. So can you expunge his record? And, uh, both judges unanimously expunged my record. Uh, and then she went a step further, fudged the paperwork and sneak me into the Navy. And that was how I got into the Navy, you know, and, uh, but again, that was, that was who she was. And like, I truly believe that that was, um, God's direction directed me to her. And, uh, you know, Tiana taking that massive risk, put her career, her her job, her livelihood on the line to help somebody out that, that she didn't even know. And uh, 
definitely changed the trajectory of my life. I wouldn't be who I am and where I am. I wouldn't have my family and kids if it wasn't for that one decision that she made to uh, give me a chance. Mm. Stood in front of two different judges yeah. and said, give this kid a break. Yeah. Man, incredible. Yeah. I think you've honored her too. If I've heard in another podcast, uh, yeah. there's a, there's a nod to her in your family, right? Yeah. 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 My daughter's name is Sienna. Uh, and so it's like a play because her daughter's name is Sierra. Uh, her daughter just graduated from high school and her daughter's almost become like my daughter, you know? Uh, and so she's now, you know, starting college in a couple of weeks and, uh, and her mom, I was actually with her, uh, Tiana's, aunt and uncle uh last week in new york they came to my chameleon book launch event in new york city because they live down the street from uh where i had the book launch and they came so i'm very close to the family and uh and uh so her family's awesome and you know her family's essentially become my family and so uh yeah yeah so we you know my daughter siana is a play on sierra and tiana that is awesome from being saved by an angel named Tiana Rays, uh, you go on to, you know, be in the Navy. I've heard this and I've read about this, but I still just want to share it on this episode again. You wanted to be a SEAL, but you couldn't swim. How does that even work? Did you ever tell Tiana you felt like being a Navy SEAL? And she's like, well, you, you from the Bronx, kid. You got yeah. Can you even swim? I mean, you yeah. ever been in, you know, seven feet of water? Tell me that a trajectory, because that's just uncanny. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, I just wanted it. You know, I tell people all the time when you have a dream, you're going to always have an obstacle on that journey towards your dream. Otherwise it wouldn't be called a dream. And, uh, for me, I had a couple obstacles. One was I couldn't swim Two, I didn't have the ASVAB scores, which is like the academic scores to get into training. And then three, I was really skinny. But when I got to my first command, I asked my LPO, can, can she change my schedule so that I could work, you know, four hours in the morning at the family practice clinic, have four hours off in the afternoon, and then come back and, 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 and train in the afternoon, and then come back uh, for the last four hours of night clinic or, you know, until it wraps up. And, uh, and, and my LPO allowed me to do that. And uh, so I just put in the work, man. It's that simple. It's no... There's no, uh, it's not complicated at all. There was no crazy formula. I just, you know, put in the work every single day, ran to the pool, three miles, jumped in the pool, tried to figure it out, ran three miles back. I was just relentless. And then, you know, before I knew it, I knew how to swim proficiently enough to get in a SEAL training. So it was pretty straightforward. Um, and even looking back now, like when I run into hard situations, uh, I'm always, you know, I, I try to think back on those times and, and not just that time, but all the other things that I've been able to overcome in the past and using that as a reference point. But it was, yeah, I couldn't swim, but I, I, I didn't let that be an excuse. I just put in the work and, uh, before I knew it, I could swim. Before I knew it, I was got, I, I, I could swim long distance. And then before I knew it, I was, uh, in seal training swimming in the ocean. <laughs> Now, before SEAL training, had you ever swum in the ocean? Swam in the ocean? No, had- no, no, not at all. Not at all. 
I just got back from my beach vacation and I was with my kids and my 12 year old is, you know, my daughter's a really, really good swimmer, but she was out there. She got behind the back shoulder of the waves and it's different than a pool, man. I mean, that had to be a wake up call. The first time that rip starts to move you and she's swimming against the rip. I can see it. And I'm going, Oh, baby girl turn around and go with it man you can get seized with fear really quick out there yeah, yeah you got the currents man you can't you know and you got the wind and the water temperature too you know off the coast of uh coronado in san diego that's that pacific ocean is cold even in the summertime it's very very cold you know and so and because i had no body fat right it was even it was even worse it was even worse for me because i had no body fat so uh yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> hey, I don't know if you ever served with him, but you know, there's another seal out there that like was not a good swimmer at all. In fact, I don't think he knew, to, I don't think he grew up knowing how to swim. He's from Montana. His name uh-huh. is Rob O'Neill. Have you ever heard him talk? Oh, yeah, no, well, yeah. I've done this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. loved hearing about how he just, he knew some guy that was just jacked in yeah. his town in Montana and the guy was a swimmer and he's, he just showed up and begged, you know, can you teach me to yeah. do what you do? Yeah. And he just, said, I'm going to learn this skill. And I think that that's something that we appreciate from all the operations community is that like, you guys aren't all born to do this. I mean, some of y'all come in just rough. I mean, I'm sure anybody. I just can't believe your chief never talked to you out of even attempting to be a seal because with (laughs) your story, I I can see any good chief or senior chief being like, look, dude, If you don't know how to swim now, there's not enough time on earth for you to become a seal, but that is good stuff. You know, that stops a lot of guys. That stops a lot of guys from even trying out, you know, is that obstacle, you know, not just that obstacle. Maybe if you, it's another obstacle, maybe it's the ASVAP test. And, you know, I get a lot of guys who are just, you know, I can't just score the score. Tell them, just keep trying. Just keep trying. But, you know, before I know it, you know, I talk to them, you know, a year later or so, and they're like, ah, just got a job at Walmart. You know, I decided, yeah, I'm not going to be able to do it. And it's like, here it goes. You know, you know, you gotta, you gotta make the choice to, uh, to overcome it, you know, to defeat what's defeating you. Mm -hmm. Adapt and overcome. And, uh, you know, do it with the grace of the good Lord and let him give you the strength. So I absolutely love that. Now let's jump into just post-military grad school, going to be a business degree holder. And somehow you get, somehow you get associated with filmmaker Michael Bay and you're whatever picked, I guess, to be a tech advisor at first, but then you end up being an actor. One, do you have any interest in film? Two, do you even know how to act? No, no, I didn't have any interest in film. I was in grad school because I was trying to get my master's uh, so that I could uh, focus on business consulting. And that's when I got contacted. Didn't really have any, never had any acting education at all. And uh, and before we knew it, you know, I got that opportunity, got that call from, and that's how it all came together. So maybe from the director's perspective, you might just be one of those knuckleheads that was really good with making sure that his visuals looked accurate and properly represented military operations. Yeah, but he's, yeah, he's that's, even, what he, yeah. that's what he looks for, because it saves time on set. If you hire an actor who has never held a weapon before, doesn't know how to move with a weapon, doesn't understand the jargon, uh, uh, you know, it's going to cost time and time is money. And so it's easy to be able to micro base shoots really fast. So it's easy to be able to put somebody in that has experience and they can also consult on 
you know, with other actors who may not have experience, like specifically the bigger actors, right? Uh, and, and if the director has questions like, hey, he can get a quick answer right away opposed to having a Where's the tech advisor? Is he, you know, craft services? He, you know, you know, where's the tech advisor? Instead of having to look for somebody, you know, the person's right there on set. So he could just say, hey, so what's, what's the right time? What would be the right thing to say here if the helicopter's about to land? Yada, 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 yada. And then, you know, you're able to be able to say it and saves time. And on a movie set, you know, time is money. You know, every day it's like costs millions of dollars, especially when you're talking about these high budget action blockbuster films. Of which you've worked with some household names. We all yeah. know Mark Wahlberg. We all know Chris Pratt. Who are yeah. some of the actors that you loved working with and why? Yeah, I mean, I love, I had great experiences with everybody. You know, Ryan Reynolds was great to work with. Mark Wahlberg was awesome. You know, super humble guys. And Chris Pratt was very humble, really good dude. Um, yeah, I can't, you know, I mean, it was just, the good people, you know, I, I love working with those guys because they're straight up. Gerard Butler was another one, just, a, you know, a good person to work with and be around. Do you think in a different life, had they not been actors, do you think they had the stuff it would take to become a spec ops? You never know, man. You never know. You, you know, you this guys, there's 200, about 250 plus guys show up to SEAL training every, every year. Uh, I'm sorry, every class. All of them looked the part, and if they didn't pass the screening test, they wouldn't be able to get into SEAL training. So they all are, you know, not not just look the part, but they all have the physicality to make it. Uh, but, you know, only 10 to 20% each class make it. So, yeah, and that's because you can never tell what's in a person's heart. And uh, you get guys who are super jacked or triathletes who quit on day two, and you get these skinny little kids who, you know, they don't look like, you know, they don't look like they could do anything and they make it all the way through and become seals. So I never try to say, Hey, this celebrity looks fit and that like they might, they might not. You can, you never, you never know until you put them into the program and, uh, and see what, what's in their heart. And from what I've learned, it's the guys that you wouldn't have ever expected to graduate that actually yeah. went on to become some great, great operators. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's funny visualizing you, a skinny black kid from the Bronx. Yeah. There yeah. he has never touched the damn ocean and yeah. <laughs> getting, yeah. getting beat up at buds. And I'm sure they all were like, he's ringing the bell. I mean, yeah. this kid's not going to last one more day. Yeah. Well, so glad you didn't. Any anecdotes you'd like to share from your days on the teams? Is any, I mean, I know obviously we're talking about missions that no one knows about and can't yeah. really be discussed, but, but, but other moments at all? that you care to reflect on or that you care to share? Yeah. You know, the one thing I will share, and this might be a good segue into chameleon is my, the biggest highlight is when I was in, I want to say what year it was, but I was in this particular country and uh, I was sitting poolside with these two CIA agents. And uh, we were, we were at this very luxurious palace that once, well, it used to be a palace, but they had turned it, it transformed into a, uh, a government compound, U.S. government compound. I just remember sitting by the pool, sipping, uh, Coronas and Cinco de Mayo and just, just reflecting on how the heck did I get here to this place, right? Um, and so, uh, so yeah, man, uh, that was, uh, that's probably the biggest thing I recall. And, and it was around that time when I was actually inspired to come up with the chameleon concept because I was like, man, there's never been a guy with my background, Africa, Bronx, 
you know, who's uh, been portrayed in TV or film. And I think it's a part for because there's never, ain't never been somebody like my, with my story to actually do it so that somebody could say, Hey, let's make a movie or uh, a film based on a character, this particular character or loosely based off this character. So, um, so that was kind of when the idea of chameleon came to me around that time when I was doing human intelligence and, uh, and I was exposed to that world. But that was that, that, that was the most, that's every time I, uh, you know, people ask me the question, what was the highlight of your career? I always say that that was the highlight of my career because I'll never forget that moment sitting by this, sitting in this palace outside by this beautiful pool, cabanas all around, palm trees around. Uh, it was, it was nighttime, Cinco de Mayo, sipping Coronas with these two, you know, agents and just thinking, or case officers and just thinking, wow, this is crazy. That is nuts. And, and that is a great segue into the book. I'll read yeah. a little bit from the jacket here, but the book essentially takes us into the black box, the yeah. CIA's elite secret special operations branch, yeah. which is so covert that a lot of times even the CIA director might not be fully aware of the unit's activities. As you'd mentioned there, meeting some real world CIA officers in a, in the middle of a war zone is kind of where Akali Kent, the Nigerian-born Bronxite chameleon that is the lead character in this book, uh, that's where he was born. Yeah. Now, his journey, unlike yours, is the hunt for Lucas Van Groot, and yeah. he's a South African terrorist criminal mastermind. He's the ringleader, and he and his cadre of international criminals are looking to do more than just kidnapping and ransom. But they're looking to create a worldwide tragedy. They are looking to do something, you know, so menacing. It'll affect every modern nation. Unpack the 30,000 foot view of Akali Kent's journey, the premise of the book. And then I want to just chisel in a couple details that I think you get from the very beginning. But let's start with the big picture. Yeah. So essentially, you know, I think you hit, you hit, you hit it the nail on the head. It's, uh, Kali Ken is a chameleon agent, which means he's a, has the ability and it's all grounded in reality, but he has the ability to become whatever character he needs to become at the drop of a dime. He's a, he's a high end method actor, uh, but his acting it has high stakes. It's not just about having a camera in front of him. It's about, you know, you know, national security, protecting the, protecting the nation and rescuing, uh, uh, those from, from, from tyrants. And, uh, so, you know, Kali, uh, Kent and his team is made up of Nevaeh. Nevaeh is a ghost agent. She has the ability to get in and out of places like a ghost. Again, grounded in reality. She's just like a really, really good cat burglar. And she's also able to plant herself places when need be. Uh, then you have Jason, who's part of the team. He's another chameleon. And you have, uh, uh, Dane Macklin, who's, uh, in charge of the team. And Dane is, uh, former chameleon, uh, turned overwatch. And then you have, um, uh, the win agent, uh, Spencer who drives all vehicles and, and pretty much works transport for the team to get them in and out of places. And so, um, you know, I wanted to, I, I didn't want to have it where colleagues like James Bond in the sense that he's able to do everything by himself. And because that's not the reality, it takes a team, you know, to save the day, you know? And so, um, uh, so that one really wanted to focus at that point, but still making Kali Kent, the, the focal point of the book, you know, because he is the main character. And, and so, yeah, we, we follow them as they're trying to expose and, and, uh, take down this, uh, this hostage ink gambit, which is more than just, uh, 
Lucas Vang, who taken hostages. He's essentially uh, taking specific hostages at specific times in order to manipulate uh, you know, not just the American stock market, but worldwide stock market. So he's making millions and millions of dollars in this very, in this very intricate, clandestine way. And uh, I wanted to do something different because you always uh, hear in, in these books of the nuclear weapon or the threat of nuclear war or, you know, uh, you know, chemical and biological warfare or whatever the case may be. And, and, uh, I wanted to, I wanted to go into economic warfare. I wanted the book to do something different and, and show how this, this antagonist is essentially, you know, he's, what he's doing is really affecting, um, the global economy. And, uh, and, 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 and doing that, that's, can, can have some potential to destabilize nations. Um, you know, and so, uh, that's, that's, that's essentially the, uh, premise of the book. And, uh, it was different. I think it's cool. And, uh, it was a fun write for sure. Yeah. And I was really glad to see it wasn't just Iraq or Afghanistan or global war on terror focused. It wasn't yeah. themed that way because we're coming out of, you know, the longest era of a conflict in America. And there's so many stories about that. And then you can almost predict, you know, the middle to the end of the movie, you know, veteran comes back, veterans having problems adjusting, doesn't have a great job. His girlfriend, you know, leaves. I mean, it's like, and it just becomes kind of this predictable narrative, which I think Hollywood doesn't intend to get wrong, but it's like America didn't need another story like that. We, We don't, the second order effect of some of those stories is we start looking at the own veterans, you know, at our own veterans in our own neighborhood. And we're like, oh God, he's got that hat on. I bet he's really, you know, don't make any loud noises near him. Like, you know, and so it was really nice to see kind of a high crime drama based around the global greed, which is something that is eternal, whether it's the narco drug traffickers that we meet in South America or whether it's, you know, how the rest of the book unpacks with chasing this Lucas Van Groot. Greed is something that will always be there and people are inspired to do horrific things in the name of it. So super cool. Hey, let's just shut real quick because I wanted to dive into some of these details. You used a couple terms there and I'm curious, are words like chameleon, ghost, wind, and aberration are those tradecraft terms like like the, do you know no. people as ghost agents? No. Are that's all made up. Yeah. Black box is made up. I created black box and I wanted to do something different, you know. So I told black box is uh it's the it's the box that the president puts his or her hand inside of when everything else has failed and the president pulls out some tools in order to get the job done and chameleon goes aberration and, uh, and has other programs such as shadow four and, and uh, uh, other ones in book two, I expand that universe a little bit more uh, that are utilized to get the job done. They're the best of the best in, as it relates to espionage. And so, uh, so yeah, it's all fictitious. Again, as I share with you, my older brother who spent his career there in Langley, um, it wasn't until his retirement ceremony that I learned some of his actual job details. Like, I mean, I never even knew what desk he worked at. Like, I mean, you know, he he went to Kyrgyzstan for two years. That rings a bell. I mean, like, not too many people go to Kyrgyzstan. It's north east of Afghanistan. It's the middle of nowhere. If you're in Bishkek, you are obviously top secret uh a clearance you know yeah. eyes only kind of stuff going on and i had no you know i had no idea i just knew he lived there for two years i thought he just you know sat at a desk but yeah. um the characteristics of these agents or the characteristic of these paramilitary operators 
you talked about, you said a chameleon is the ability to blend and be someone else. Ghosts are specialists in like stealth and surveillance. Um, wind. They're the ones that are what the transportation experts. Yeah. Yeah. I think you described at one point, they're the kind of guys that you can, if it's got wheels and a motor or any kind of like machinery, they can figure out how to use it. Um, yeah. Not that they can figure out, they already know how to use it. They, they're just experts in it. So they can like drive like a NASCAR driver. They can fly a drone, like a yeah. Falconeer. They can, yeah. I mean, they can fly a plane. They can, you know, they can uh, fly, drive jet skis, drive a boat, you name it. They can do it. And what probably wouldn't be surprising is like all of these agents or all of these operators prowess with, um, firepower. Yeah. Uh, most of you guys, is it true that coming out of SEAL teams, like you can basically pick up just about any kind of weapon? And- well, you train in yeah, you train in a wide variety, variety of weaponry from, you know, uh, pistols to, to rifles to, to, you know, even basic understanding on sniper weapons to machine guns to, you know, uh, you know, uh, AT4s, rocket launchers. So yeah, you're trained in a, in a wide variety of weaponry for sure. That's a wild skill because to the civilian, it kind of blows your mind, but you could walk yeah. up into anywhere. So, you know, the bad guy drops a gun, you pick it up, you can immediately go, oh, okay, it's hammer's yeah. locked. I got to, you know, get the chamber racked yeah. here. I mean, to be able to know how to use all that stuff is just, just thrilling in and of itself. Um, yeah. The aberration agents yeah. are one that kind of fascinated me. When they say deep cover for years, there are, you know, without disclosing any OPSEC stuff here, there are people right now around the world that have been living somewhere for two, three years, and everyone over there thinks their name is Steve or yeah. thinks they're a shopkeeper, and it's really yeah. a cover that we yeah. may not have to use for years to come, but they stay embedded in a city, in a town where yeah. everyone just thinks they're a shopkeeper or something. Yeah, yeah. that's the aberration agent. Yeah, like they exist yeah. in another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Name, so the aberration agents type. are like, a, yeah, they do a minimum of a decade. So they do a minimum of a decade. So that, that way they're, they're deeply embedded and they essentially become, almost become a part of the culture. So yeah, yeah. And they might never expect, like they're just yeah. there in case the phone rings one day. Yeah. They're like, Hey, we need you to hide these people or we need you to get information on this area. Yeah. That's aberration. So we could be like in like name any sort of weird clandestine war torn country over there, but you could be over there, you know, as an American operator and like yeah. they'd say, okay, there's a place you can go, go to this yeah. house, this address, ask for Steve. Yeah. Yeah. Dang. Yeah. 100%. Does that freak you out a little bit that the, that the, that the reach of the American intelligence industry or the American intelligence sphere, like, goes that deep across the world? Well I, I don't, well, I don't know what they do. I'm not that rooted. I'm not that, I'm not that, uh, read into it. I just made it up. <laughs> <laughs> but yet just, parallels real life though. I'm saying like, did that ever freak you out? Like as a seal, like that, that like, like you could be anywhere in the world and like someone would say, Oh, here, report to this address. Like that's a, that's just mind blowing that we have yeah. shops set up like that globally. Wow. Yeah. Well, I can't confirm or deny that because I don't know. Uh, I just know that I made it up for the book. <laughs> I love it though. I love it. You couldn't have made it up without some kind of experience. And that's just something I'll just kind of, kind of yeah. just marinate on in my own mind and use yeah. my, 
appreciation looking at you, but I think it's a, you know, a testament to the, you know, to the intelligence community. Just, just so cool. So cool. Um, something maybe kind of rooted in real life, but like when you get out of the teams, are there like phone calls or emails that come in and they're like, Hey, this is uh, you know, Chuck Johnson down here in Langley. You know, would you like to talk? I mean, do they recruit you guys when you get out and see if you maybe want to go disappear for a little while longer? Or I, I mean, is that kind of a standard sort of thing upon leaving I, the teams? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's never happened to me. So I don't know, but I don't know. No, I, no, I, no, I, I do know. I, knew, I do know guys who are going on to work with the agency, but I don't know what that process was. Yeah. Like, okay. Okay. So it's not standard issue your last day at the platoon and they, you know, there's a, yeah, it doesn't look like a trade show. There's not a guy with a suit at a table and a tablecloth. Yeah. Are you interested in disappearing? <laughs> Fill out this form and we'll call you. Okay. Okay. You should be an author, man, because you got some good ideas, brother. <laughs> I just visualize like last day before you ring the bell and they, you know, uh, send you ashore, you know, yeah. here's a, here's a little trade room full of, uh, government contacts. You might want to know. Yeah. No, it, trust me. If I were a recruiter, I'd be looking at you guys because you yeah. guys have some serious skills. Um, what's the takeaway from a chameleon? Yeah, the takeaway is uh, the importance of national unity. The takeaway is that you know there are outside forces that are and inside forces inside America that are intentionally trying to divide us and keep us divided because that's the way you conquer any nation, any group. And so um, the, the main, the substratum of the book is that, you know, essentially we need to come together. And if we don't come together, then we will all lose at some point in time. And I bring that message to the forefront and I'm very overt with that message towards the end of the book. When uh, the National Security Advisor says to the President of the United States, uh, because he's not wanting to make a decision uh, uh, based off of politics, he says to him, Hey, this is not the United States of, of Democrats or the United States of Republicans. It's the United States of America. And until you can look at things from that perspective for the greater good of, of this nation, then our traumas are going to keep getting worse. So I'm very overt with that message towards the end. But, uh, that's the substratum is that, it, you know, it takes a team. It takes a united front to overcome the traumas and the issues. And until we can come together, we're going to keep the divide is going to keep widening. And then before you know, it, we're not going to have a country anymore. And, uh, and so that's the thing. And, 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 you know, there's multiple tools that can be used in that, you know, I get, I get it, get in a greater detail in the, and as far as some, I, I, I talk about other tools in book two, um, but you know, there's a lot of tools that are, I don't want to give it away. I want people to read the book to, to, to yeah, for yeah. themselves, but there's, there's tools that tools that are being used to uh, keep us separate. Mm, very cool. And yeah. we live in a world where every time you turn on the TV, we're trying to be divided. We're trying to be shocked. Yeah, we're trying to yeah. be twisted into anger. And that yeah. doesn't help. I'm so yeah. glad that that is kind of the backbone or, or, you know, at least an underlying narrative of this yeah. incredible book called Chameleon. And yeah. um, you got to check out this action thriller. Hey, let's yeah. land here. We all need a force in our life. We all need kind of a higher power to help us. For you and me, it's obvious. It's God talking about the importance of faith in your life. And as we've heard this incredible story over this last hour, share with me just a little bit about how your day starts and that importance of having God. Yeah, for me, it's everything, man. It's, uh, 
you know, I did a post the other day on social media that said hope is more precious than silver and gold. And that's so true. And my hope is in my hope is in Jesus, man. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I go through battles and struggles, uh, to this day and, um, far from perfect. But when I make mistakes or when things don't go as I expected or I have, you know, issues in my family, health issues in my family, other people, I always have hope that, you know, God is going to work it out. God's going to, you know, turn this bad uh, for good. And, uh, and everything's going to be all right. And that hope is priceless, you know, and so to be able to, to, um, rely on something greater than me, something bigger than me with faith and trust that it's going to work out. Man, you can't put a price tag on that. So that's my everything, man. You know, you know, um, God is there. I breathe, you know, the, the, just everything, you know. So that's my walk. That's my life, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I couldn't imagine living without the Lord, you know. Amen. And I bring it up most notably because when we first met was the week I learned of my brother's cancer diagnosis. Yeah. And, um, you prayed with me. Just, I mean, out of the blue, it was the last thing I expected. We were going to just talk about your last book. And instead, we ended that call with what was just so heartfelt. And it took me a few years until I, you know, I really had to realize that here's a guy that as a SEAL veteran is trained to be able to handle most any situation. As an actor, you know, you learn to adapt and get into the whole entertainment world. As an author, you learn to write books, but you didn't rely on any of that on your own skills and your own abilities, you you really relied on the good Lord. And I think that that, you know, some might see as a dichotomy. I think it's just a beautiful, beautiful message that we need to stay united and we need to stay believing in God. And with those things, you've really managed to put together one heck of a great book and you serve as, you know, inspiration for me, but I know for countless others, you know, you're really showing us some incredible things out there. And I just can't thank you enough for sharing your gifts with the world and uh, your faith in God. So absolutely tremendous. The book is Chameleon. It is Navy SEAL Vet. Remy Adeleke's story of uh, Holly Kent. What a ride. What a book. What a life. Remy Adeleke, I can't thank you enough, my brother. Thank you for having me on, Phil. I greatly appreciate you. <laughs> Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most-watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.